This is the best, most fun I have ever, ever, ever had on a podcast. This is a hit. I'm Jesse Cole, your host of Business Done Differently, where we get to meet successful people who look at business differently and we get to know them in a different way. You get passion out of four buckets. One is your passion about what you do. Another bucket is your passion about why you do it. You know, in other words, you may not have a job that, that is what you would ideally be doing, but it enables you to contribute money or to put your kids through college. And then there's passion about how you do it. You can throw a rock and hit a baseball game in, in the United States. <laughs> but what you've done is you're passionate, not just about the game, but how the experience is conducted. So that's the how part. And then the final trump card, if you can't be passionate about those other three things, be passionate about who you do it for. Yeah, right. Be passionate about the customer that you're helping. Be passionate about the coworker you're supporting. Be passionate about the spouse at home who's depending on you. Today, I have on the show one of the most influential authors and speakers in the world, the one and only Mark Sanborn, the author of Fred Factor, which has sold more than 2 million copies, also the author of Fred Factor 2.0, The Potential Principle. He's a member of the Speaking Hall of Fame, and Mark, I know you've worked with the who's who in the business world. Welcome to the show, Mark. Jesse, I'm delighted to be here. been looking forward to it. All my friends that have been on the show have given such uh, high accolades for the creativity you bring to podcasts and god knows i've done enough podcasts to know uh, that if they're not done well they can be gruesome well it's, it's definitely going to be different so we're going to have some fun and i'm excited to have you and i want to open with excited or scared i'm so excited i'm so scared with you right now what's got you either excited or scared well, I can speak to both of them. I'm always excited about the future because as I read and study, I just see so many opportunities to do things we never thought we could do anymore. I mean, just look at one area in terms of 3D printing. You know, first we thought it'd be very cool to be able to print uh, a car, and now there's actually a, a car that's been printed that you can license. And uh, on top of that, they're now printing houses, which really kind of blows the lid off what uh, is possible with uh, uh, giving people affordable housing. So I'm excited. I'm excited about that. You know, what I'm afraid of is just these crazy times we live in where if somebody disagrees with you, they they call you a name and shut you down and shout you shout over you. And yeah. it seems that uh, civility has uh, has uh, met its demise, you know, rest in peace. And I think until we can start to communicate better and be more civil to each other, we're going to have a, a lot bigger problems going forward. Yeah. Well, I, I got I can't just let you go. You can actually print a house right now yeah well they've done it yeah the first house it was in the paper oh, i don't know two or three weeks ago uh was printed in a little under 24 hours yeah, you can actually print a house <laughs> all right that's that's fascinating whoever's printing houses if you're listening to the show we'd love to have you on because that is that's fascinating to me but you know mark i, I want to get into your story and we call it story of my life the story I'm just fascinated by your story, and one of my favorite podcasts is How I Built This, where it actually interviews founders of huge businesses. But I want to know, how have you built your success? Well, my success kind of was rooted in abject failure because at the age of 10, I entered a speaking contest and did so badly and was so humiliated that I decided I was going to figure out how to be a public speaker and entered every contest a kid could possibly enter at the time. And really, that's what got me interested in speaking. And it was speaking 
they got me interested in leadership. Certainly, uh, public speaking isn't the only skill of leadership, but it's such an essential uh, and important one that the two have overlapped for me, you know, uh, full time as a speaker for over 31 years. And really what I did is I started speaking to anybody who would listen, and I worked really hard at my craft at getting good at what I did. And that, of course, created spinoff opportunities when I spoke. And then at the ripe old age of 27, after a brief career in sales and marketing, I started speaking full-time professionally. All right, we got to go back a little bit. What at the age of 10 could spark someone so much excitement to do public speaking? Well, I wasn't sparked by excitement. I was, uh, and I'm just being completely transparent. I was an overweight kid who did well in school and had no athletic ability, which is kind of a trifecta for getting beat up uh, when you think about it. And I was a member of a 4-H club. I'm not making this up, Jesse. The Happy Hayseeds. And uh, when they wanted a representative for the, it was to be specific. It was a safety speaking contest, not just any speech. Safety. You had to pick a subject related to safety. And they thought, you know, the, the fat kid who does well in school could probably figure out how to do this. So I was kind of nominated. I didn't say, wow, what a wonderful opportunity and raise my hand. And I figured, you know, how hard could it be? Uh, and the answer is really hard. Um, my first speech was hunting knife safety. Boy, there's a there's a topic that's still big and demanding in my business. Yeah, hunting knife safety. And, you know, I mean, I'm 59 years old and I was 10. So 49 years later, I can remember standing behind this little lectern on a table and, I, and where the people in the audience were that were the judges and where my parents and the other contestants and their parents were I can still remember that because it was such a humiliating you know the red rose in my neck like a thermometer kind of an experience that that really is the trigger that uh, created this resolve to figure out how to be a good public speaker. Wow. And so what did you learn? Because I'm, I'm still fascinated, someone doing public speaking that young and then going full time. So obviously, you know, 17 years of speaking to go full time. But, you know, what did you learn that you were like, wow, this is going to be it for me. And this is how you can be a great speaker. When I started speaking, I didn't know really that there were such a thing as professional public speakers. I mean, at 10, I knew there were, you know, authors. I was reading, you know, self-help books by Norman Vincent Peale and Og Mandino and some of the greats. But when I was 16 years old, Og Mandino was speaking in Akron, Ohio, about an hour, hour and a half from where I lived on a farm in Northeast Ohio. And I drove down to hear Og speak, which is kind of a big deal for a farm kid to drive into the big city of Akron. And I was so blown away by what Og said and how he said it that I kind of had this epiphany that, you know, he was being paid to do this. I mean, I knew he got paid to, you know, write books and he got royalties. But that's really where the light bulb turned on. And I thought, wow, there are people that make a living doing this. And when I was in college, having... <laughs> Having been uh, state and later national president of a youth organization called FFA, Future Farmers of America back then, yeah. now it's just called FFA, a lot of people had heard me speak for free, and, and I started getting phone calls to speak at high school commencements and, and uh, after dinner what events. Were you, what were you speaking about? I was speaking, I, I called myself, uh, I didn't call myself then, but I consider myself kind of a book report giver. You know, I read these great books and I threw in some quotes. I think one of the big focal points was what a young person 
believes about agriculture. Again, kind of a niche topic. But, you know, I was a college student and uh, my roommate worked at Wendy's. And in one afternoon speech, I could make what he made working two weeks and coming home to the apartment smelling like a French fry. So I thought, you know, this is this is a good gig. I mean, I love America, right? And it was then that I, I got involved in the National Speakers Association because I, you know, I, I really... <laughs> I wasn't so self-absorbed as to think that at the at that age I really had a lot to offer. I knew I needed some business experience and I need to kind of add tools to my kit and deepen my expertise in different areas. And I thought one of the best ways to do that was to become a member of the National Speakers Association, which I joined while I was yet in college. Wow. And so all of those things prepared me for that launch that I took in uh, when I was 27. And, you know, I've been speaking since I was 19 for $150, $200 a speech. And, and I just kind of uh, pulled the trigger and started speaking full time at the age of 27. Wow, I love that. And it sounds like the, the speaking has been the great platform for you. And I think a lot of people that listen, you know, to the show, no matter what business you have, you have to be able to speak to a degree, whether you're doing it and getting paid. But, you know, my question for you is, if you could simplify what makes you a great speaker or makes a great speaker, what would you say? I would say two things. One is a, a persistent quest to find material that's interesting and relevant. I mean, it's easy to develop a speech and, you know, ride that horse until it dies, right? You know, that speech that you can give over and over and over. So I'm always looking for new illustrations. First of all, I enjoy it. And secondly, it, it's the lifeblood of my business because people, you know, we, we live in such an over-communicated age. You've got to have something really interesting to say to get people's attention. The second part of it for me is one of the things I like about not specializing by industry or profession is I'm very curious about lots of different businesses. And so I do a deep dive on all of my clients. I, I never go in to give a speech like I'm an insider. I recently spoke for Cumberland Farms, which has about 560 uh, convenience stores uh, in the Northeast and in Florida as well. And so I did a lot of backgrounding so that I could speak to the store managers in a way that what I said was relevant to them and they didn't have to do the hard work of going, hmm, well, that's interesting, but I wonder what that would look like in my store. Mm -hmm. So I would say that uh, ability to understand and tailor the material that I have uh, created is the second part of, for me, what has driven a great deal of my success in the business. Outstanding. So you were speaking and then obviously started working with companies. You know, can you tell me some of the, I mean, obviously you work with some of the biggest companies in the world. You know, are there things that all these great companies have? Is that kind of what guided you to start writing books? Can you share? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, I, I'm far less convinced now than I, I was at the beginning that there is a, a particular recipe. There's a fascinating book, and since you're an avid reader, uh, maybe you've read it, called The Halo Effect. And it kind of debunks this cause and correlation that we like to do in business. And I'll just give you kind of a, a generic example. Let's say you study 10 companies that are fantastically successful, and you study 10 companies that aren't. And those 10 companies that are successful all have a really big gym and a great employee health program. I mean, they're really committed to getting their people into the gym and working out and losing weight and eating healthy. And so it would be easy to say then that if you want to be great, you need a great health program for your employees. But here's the problem. Maybe those 10 companies 
have a great gym because they have so much success they can afford to build a great gym. In other words, we go back to that cause and correlation. Cause is not correlation. Just because all 10 great companies have a gym doesn't mean having a gym makes them a great company. And let's say you look at those 10 companies that aren't successful and you say, you know what? Not a single one of those companies has a customer service department. You say, you know what it is? No customer service department. That's the kiss of death. If you don't have a customer service department, well, again, maybe those companies have been uh, operationally uh, focused or maybe those companies aren't successful enough and they, they put marketing and customer service in the same department. But again, cause is not correlation. So what I try to do is rather than looking for those kind of specifics, I try to be principle based. Because principles don't change. You know, a principle is true across time, it's true across culture, and it's true across context. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the, the principles of good communication were true long before there was email. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that you apply those principles when you send an email, the application's changed, but the principle hasn't. Communication is about being understood, and it's about understanding. Uh, that's a principle that will never change. No, so a, what I look for is what are the companies, what principles do companies use that make them successful? But I really start, as you know, from my work with the Fred Factor at an individual level and say, what are the principles individuals can use to be successful? Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I think that's a great transition to Fred Factor, which has had such a huge impact on the world. And basically the whole concept of ordinary to extraordinary. And I, I really would like you to share you know, I guess as it's transformed, you know, how does someone, you know, become a Fred, you know, and you share it in the book, but really, can you train people to be this Fred? And maybe just give a little background on Fred for the people that haven't heard the story. Well, Fred is, he's retired now, but when I met him many years ago, he was a postal carrier uh, for USPS here in Denver, Colorado. He, he delivered my mail and he had a simple job, but he brought such artistry and craft to it that it was amazing. And, uh, you know, if, if people want to read the first chapter of the book for free, they can go to fredfactor.com. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a PDF or uh, there's a uh, page up there called The First Fred I Ever Met. And that's the story of Fred Shea, the real life postal carrier. And what what happened is, you know, I just basically observed Fred doing things that I've observed in other businesses, but rarely had observed in a business that was and I don't mean this in any kind of a derogatory way, but pretty simple business, you know, about sorting and putting mail in a box. And what I realized is if Fred could bring that kind of artistry to something as redundant, potentially redundant, and to some people boring is putting mail in a box, then you and I have no excuse. You know what I mean? Yeah, we all have a bigger canvas to work with, most of us. And it's it's not about the job you have but how you do the job. That was kind of the epiphany for me. And so that became the basis of the book. Uh, people sometimes still want to know if Fred's a real person. He is. <laughs> He's still doing great. I still talk to him on a regular basis. I consider him a, a valued friend. And I extrapolated the, the things that Fred does and, frankly, that most successful people do to be successful. I love that. Now, I'm actually going to come up with a brand new segment right now because I'm intrigued. If this segment's gonna, I'm going to give an industry or a type of business, and I'd like you to share how an ordinary employee, what they could do to be a Fred. All right, you ready for this, Mark? You bet. All right. You're a fast food uh, register person. So you're, uh, you're working at McDonald's, and you're on the register. 
Well, in the Fred Factor, I talk about four principles, and so I'm going to apply all four principles to being on the register at McDonald's. Number one, everybody makes a difference. There is no neutrality. If you know that you know, you're a difference maker, you're going to either in, uh, brighten someone's day or, or darken it, then you have a, a cheerful attitude so that you know for that minute that you interact or that 30 seconds you interact with a person placing their order, that you have a smile and that you're happy. Not because you have to be, because that kind of fake crap people see right through. <laughs> but you're happy because you've got an opportunity to positively impact this person's life for 30 or 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. Then it's about building relationship. And, you know, if you find out what that person's name is for the order, and I'm not sure if it's a number system now or a name system, but even if it's a number system, ask them their name, not so much because you need it for them getting the order, but because you can use it to say, thanks, Mark, for coming in today. That little touch of personalization isn't a deep, lasting relationship, but allows you to make a connection when you do that. How do you add value? Well, you add value one way by adding information. And when somebody says, would you like French fries to go with that? That's a question they've been taught to say. But if instead, as somebody did the other night when I was eating truffles, they said, have you ever eaten these truffles with a glass of red wine? There's a way of making a suggestion. And by the way, those two things go together very well, even though <laughs> I'm not a wine drinker. When you make a suggestion that's helpful, you've just added value to the transaction. And then the fourth principle is you got to reinvent yourself every day. You know, I think one of the mistakes we make is we wait for somebody to motivate us. Bad idea. You know, you won't always work somewhere where you have somebody that gets up in the morning and says, how am I going to motivate this person? You motivation is an inside job. Take responsibility for coming to work with the right attitude and the right energy and the right enthusiasm that you can make a positive difference and you can build positive relationships and you can add value to what you do. I, uh, th those are some simple things that any of us can do, but specifically uh, if you're behind the register at a fast food restaurant. You know, I, I love that, especially, I mean, the big question I have is reinventing yourself daily. You know, how, how, does, how does someone do that? That person that's working the register, what do they do daily to reinvent themselves? You know, this is going to sound silly, but they just do something different that they didn't do the day before. Uh, you know, people talk about driving a different way to work. And although that's interesting, I'm not sure that it's going to manifest itself in any kind of new job skill. But, you know, maybe you play around with how quickly you can make change. Or maybe uh, you uh, reinvent yourself by uh, learning to do something with a coin so that it's a little sleight of hand trick. So that when you give somebody the change, they see it in your hand. But when you go to drop it into their hand, it's gone. Well, of course, you give them their change eventually. You don't keep the change. But those kinds of things, asking yourself, what can I do to just switch it up today? See, you do that for yourself. Life, Helen Keller said it, and I, I think it's one of the most profound quotes of all time, is life not a thousand times too short to bore ourselves. And, you know, so people go, oh, you know, and Jesse, you'll love this. You know, sometimes I get these, these crazy Amazon reviews. Oh, <laughs> Sanborn works for the man. You know, I'm not sure who the man <laughs> the is. Man. I've never gotten a paycheck from the man, but he wants us to work harder uh, without getting paid for it. No, uh, you do this first and foremost for you, because if you're sleepwalking through the day, you're not ever going to get paid more. That's for sure. But even if you don't get paid more, wouldn't you want to just do it so that you don't have to suffer through an eight hour shift? <laughs> No, 100%. I mean, I guess, I guess what just fascinates me is that it, it makes so much sense. And, you know, at our ballparks, you know, we hire people that can sing, that can dance, that are talented, that can use their unique talents. But, you know, my question is we hire a lot of people that, you know, they, they want to work, work the games, they want to be there. It's how do you pull that out? And this may even lead towards 
potential principal, you know, how do you actually pull out these unique talents and get them to care? Well, you know, I think, and I don't want to make, this sounds a little like a cop-out, but you got to hire people who care. You can teach them skills. Okay. But, you know, don't don't hire people who don't really care or who aren't motivated or have a bad attitude. You know, I sometimes people like to debate, can you change an attitude? Can you change motivation? You don't have enough time or money to do that. Uh, you know, why? You know, and, and, so, and then it, then you get the real naysayers that go, well, the, the only people that apply are the people that don't have a good attitude or aren't motivated. Well, what does that say about who you're attracting, right? Yeah. I, I mean, like attracts like. If you're getting people that you think aren't very good applying, maybe you don't have a very good reputation as an employer in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. But when you take somebody that fundamentally has a good attitude, who's cheerful, who likes people, and then you teach them the skills of how to be extraordinary, that's the cool part. You know, I don't know who originally said it. My friend Nito Cobain reminded me of it. But yeah. expectation without education equals frustration. If you just hired people and said, now, you know, go, go out and sing between innings, you know, <laughs> they probably, you know, are going to have limited success because they don't know what to sing, how long to sing, how well to sing. Uh, you, you've got to teach people. You've got to give people the skills to do what you want them to do. But to really circle back, the best way to create more Freds in your organization is twofold. One is recognize the ones you've already got mm-hmm. because we notice what gets recognized, right? If my coworker gets a free set of movie tickets or a Starbucks card, I, I start to pay attention. Hmm. Evidently, they're doing something right. Maybe I should learn to do that. The second thing is to demonstrate it. Be the role model because, you know, you can't demand. I love it when somebody says, well, I'm going I'm to go back and make everybody be a Fred. No, you're not. Uh, you're going to go back and you're going to alienate them. And you're gonna, what you're going to make is you're going to make them give me a crappy review on Amazon because now they hate me because you go back and you say, hey, I just read this book. Do this, right? Doesn't work. Uh, and then you go online and you use passive aggression to, to get even. But I would say demonstrate it because nobody is going to be more committed than you are as the leader. You know, it's such a cliche, but it's true. Leaders are, you know, they're they're thermostats. They're not thermometers. (laughs) And uh, if you're a thermometer, then you only are as as hot as the the temperature of the people around you. If you're a, a a thermostat, you raise the temperature in the room. Oh, I love that. That's brilliant. And you wrote this in your book. And I think it's it's you wrote inspire, but don't intimidate. And I'm guessing that a lot of leaders come in and are intimidate and they don't inspire. But is there an easy way to say to not be intimidating? I mean, you're a boss to most people, managers, people, they seem intimidating. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great question. I'm a I'm kind of a simple guy. You know, Clint Hurdle, you know, Clint Hurdle, of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Clint's a fantastic human being. And he used to attend the church I attend here in Denver. And uh, Clint has a what I think is one of the great prayers of all time. His prayer each morning is, Lord, make me a simple man in a complex world. <laughs> and, and so I think, I think you know, simple Occam's razor, you know, simple is good. If you don't want to intimidate people, tell them you don't want to intimidate them. I mean, talk about the 800-pound gorilla. Yeah. Say, you know what? I know when I was in your position, I was intimidated by who I reported to. Mm-hmm. That's kind of natural. And I know that sometimes I can be intimidating. Just know that I don't intend to be. Mm-hmm. And I hope that when you start to feel intimidated, you'll let me know or that you'll just tell me that I'm being too intense so that I can relate to you. And and that way, you kind of clear the, the, the air right off the bat. Now, does that mean that they won't be intimidated? 
in a way, they'll be less intimidated because you've basically identified a potential problem. Mm -hmm. But the second way not to be intimidating is you build a relationship. You know, people you don't know intimidate you. People I know, I know some very successful people that if I didn't know them, I would be intimidated by them. But once I got to know them, I'm not intimidated anymore. So when you get to know people, they are less intimidated because they see you for who you are, you know, another person who has the same, you know, hopes, fears, struggles, and desires as they do. Yeah, 100%. Well, I think a great key is, is you want to try to be on the same page with them, and you want to be on not just the same page, but the same level. I think a lot of time bosses try to get the hierarchy. And, you know, I notice here with our teams, it's a lot about us literally, we make movies, you know, during the off season, and I'm in the movies, and our president's in the movies, and we're all, our staff's doing videos that are fun and engaging. When you put everyone at the same level together, it takes away some of the intimidation. But I'm sure most businesses working with their boss or manager can be a scary a scary thing to ask for things. So, no, well, I, let's let's yeah. let's talk about same level because right. you know we're we're talking figuratively, but literally, don't tower over people. If you don't want to intimidate, I mean, you come into somebody's office and they're seated. Don't stand over their desk. Either sit down or take a walk with them so that you are literally on the same level. If you've ever worked with kids. The way you relate to kids is by getting down to their level, whether that means getting down on a knee or sitting down on the floor, because that literally is the first key to developing rapport with a, a little person, you know, with a, with a young person. Oh, that's outstanding. Excellent. All right. Well, I want to move to a couple games. We'll get back into it. So the, the first one, and you've seen some of your buddies, Larry Winget do it, Joe Calloway, truth and dare. Just do it. Which one would you like to do first? Well, let's start with dare. <laughs> All right, I will give you the option here because we've had a few different things. You can either do any celebrity impersonation or a game that we do at our stadium where we start a song, and when the song stops, you have to finish that song lyric. Yeah, let me try the song lyric. I heard, by the way, Larry Wingett does a pretty good Bill Clinton, but that he's was from very Oklahoma, good. That, so that was very he had, good. he had a leg up on that. All right, so we're going to go music. So I'm going to play the song. As soon as it finishes, you need to belt it out. And this usually happens in front of 4,000 fans, so you're just doing it on the air. It's even better. Here we go. Great. your best shot <laughs> yes hit me with your best shot boy I, pat benatar's voice is a little higher than mine but at least i got the words and you got the pat benatar you you win that segment wow that was outstanding and you will be the only person ever to sing hit me with the best shot on the business done differently podcast so mark <laughs> and and your listeners are grateful for that <laughs> we actually just lost most of them but that's okay we'll move on from there now i appreciate it, mark that was great now for the truth i'm going to serious because you know you've built so much success speaking writing working with companies is there anything that's holding you back today for more success Ironically, it's it's really one of the underpinnings of my success. I'm very, very focused, always have been. And, you know, when I started speaking, I got hit with business opportunities, often direct selling opportunities every other week. You know, you'd be in front of an audience. Someone would come up and say, boy, I've got a, you know, given your speaking skills, I've got a great business opportunity for you. And then they'd tell you typically about a direct selling opportunity. And I always used to say the same thing. I used to say, you know, I'm going to be lucky to be really, really good at one thing. And that one thing right now I've chosen is to work on being a really good speaker. So thanks for your interest, but no thanks. <laughs> so focus has been very powerful for me. But what happens, and, and I don't think this is unique to me, I'm at a unique point in my life where I have what I call excess capacity. You know, I have systems, I have a team of people, 
and the businesses that I am involved with, they're, you know, they're, they're not self-sustaining. Businesses always require energy. If you ever stop selling and marketing, no matter how successful you are, you eventually won't be successful anymore. Mm-hmm. But that's a long way of saying I do have time I never used to have. And so I'm trying to find new focal points that are the intersection really between three things. What I want to do, or what, excuse me, what I can do, you know, skill set, what I like to do, and what's profitable. Because you realize at some point in your life, you know, the runway is is not indefinite. There's an end to the runway. And I hope I've got, you know, 20 productive more years. Who knows if it's two years, uh, 12, 12 years or 20. But I want to make sure that what I'm doing isn't just enjoyable. That's a hobby. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that what I'm doing isn't just a skill set. You know, that's a job. But that what I'm doing is is profitable. And, and when I say profitable, I mean both uh, literally and psychically. You know, there there are things that I do because I want to do them and I don't make much, if any, money, but they bring me such great joy and such great reward that I, I consider them profitable. Mm-hmm. There's other times where I've gotten paid a lot of money and it wasn't profitable because I hated what I had to do yeah. uh, to make the money. So for me, it's about that intersection, what I can do, like to do, and what's profitable. And that's what's holding me back. I've, I'm working on some new things. I've got uh, just got involved in a new business. It's not direct selling, so I'm not going to ask <laughs> you to be in my in my downline. But um, I, I definitely feel that what's holding me back is a lack of focus in the new areas that I want to uh, take advantage of. And I bet that's something that most entrepreneurs, business leaders have, because what made them successful is they're constantly looking for new opportunities. So it, it makes a lot of sense to me, Mark. You just don't want to be repetitive. You know, I yeah. mean, it, it's such a big world. You know, why? It, it, once you've mastered something, and certainly I can be a lot better. Nobody ever ultimately masters their craft. But once you get to a certain level, it can. You do run the risk of it becoming repetitive. So you got to look for new challenges to keep life interesting. And I think, you know, one thing about the new challenges, and you, you hear this all the time now, leaders talking about, you, you know, you got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, do you believe that? Are you still doing things that make you uncomfortable to grow? Oh, definitely. You know, my, my wife once pointed something out. Well, she points a lot of things out that are very wise, and that's one of the reasons I married her. Uh, she said, you know, you, you do your best when you're really challenged, you know, when, when you're under a lot of pressure and even stress on the stage. If you go into an event, you know, and you just know that the corporate speakers ahead of you, you know, they had the 200-word PowerPoint slides, and they droned on and on, and uh, you're the only speaker on the program, and that no matter what you do, you're going to be well-received. You don't perform as well as when you're on a program where they just cut your time back by 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're following another professional speaker who just crushed it, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know that there's a, a person in the audience that could potentially hire you to do five gigs for their organization. That's what brings out your best, yeah. you know, not the sleepwalking, not the do it, you know, because it's easy. But what am I going to do today to make sure I'm firing on every cylinder? So, yeah, that that to me, you know, if it, being uncomfortable, uh, that's let me put it this way. Pat, Pat Masso, a good friend of mine, once said, uh, you know, I pay my my trainer to create resistance. And I always tell leaders, you know, take the path of some resistance. If you're not 
if you don't encounter resistance, you're not growing. Mm -hmm. If you're not encountering resistance, you're not changing, you're not growing. That's one of the first clues that you're getting better is when you buck up against resistance. Yeah, because if you're not feeling it, then you're playing it safe. That, that makes that makes so much sense. All right, I, I love that. I want to go to another game here because I'm actually, it's not a game, it's a debatable. Wrong. I'm very intrigued. You've been studying leadership and speaking, working with companies. What are your thoughts, college or no college? Well, I think, you know, the great answer to most questions is it depends. <laughs> uh, you know, I've got two sons. My, my firstborn's a, a sophomore at Ohio State University. He's thriving. He loves the environment. Uh, my secondborn is, uh, I got a high IQ off the charts, smart kid, doesn't particularly, hasn't particularly liked high school. And he may go to college and he may not go to college. And frankly, I think going to college just because it's the thing to do or it's expected of you is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. What I ultimately think college is for anyone is a badge of tenacity. It says to an employer, hey, I may have majored in medieval renaissance uh, history. I guess medieval and renaissance don't really go together. I may have majored in, in medieval history. But really, I spent four years showing up for class every day, turning in my work, and, uh, and, I, and I, I made it. And here's my diploma. Because you want somebody that you know has that stick-to-itiveness. Mm -hmm. Now, in a perfect world, your degree is wonderfully applicable. You know, you, you got a degree in medieval history, and you work at a medieval museum, right? I mean, that's the perfect combination. But man, I know so many entrepreneurs and so many people who are self-taught. That, that's one other thing I'll throw in there is when I, you know, back in the dark ages, when I went to college, we didn't have an internet. Yeah. Being self-taught, you had books. Trust me, you can be an autodidact. You can use <laughs> books and, and teach yourself. But today, this is the best time to be alive to put together your own education. Yeah. You know, uh, online or just put together your own curriculum and do a deep dive. But you got to have discipline because one thing college does do is with professors and a grading system, that's kind of your safety net to make sure that you're making progress. Yeah. I, th I think that you that's a fair answer for it because it's, it's tough to say. It does depend. I'm just I'm very intrigued to see what happens in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years um, with the college because of the debt situation, the cost. And then also because literally, yeah, people I've heard this numerous times. We learn more in a summer and in an internship with you than we've learned in four years about real life experience. And I guarantee that's happening for numerous businesses. They get into it. They're like, wow, this isn't just a theory. This is actually a, a practice. So I, I'm intrigued. I think it's going to be disrupted. And uh, I just want to get your feedback on that. But now that you have, you know, your kids, you're obviously looking at that. So. Yeah, it's real life for me. <laughs> it is, 100%. All right, I want to get some more opinions here on love it or leave it. So this is the business edition, love it or leave it. And I'm going to name something, and you're going to say whether you love it or you don't care for it. You ready? All right. Working from home. Love it. All right. Why? Well, again, I for me, uh, I work wherever I'm at. Yeah. I can work at home. I can work at my office. I can work in the back of a cab on an airplane in a hotel room. I just think the flexibility to get work done when the time and the spirit moves you is a wonderful thing. Right. Yeah, I just didn't know from your perspective because you look at uh, environments of companies you work with on how well they work together for a culture because working from home, it really eliminates a culture. Well, I have an office here in Denver, and Danielle Thompson, who is my uh, executive assistant, works here four days a week. But last year, when we did a performance review, I was trying to look at some ways that I could reward her without just, you know, using the proverbial increase in pay. Yeah. And I said, you know, we're going to try something. How about you work from home on Fridays? 
between email and the phone, even though she's not in the office next door to me like she normally is, we it's just as easy for us to do business and stay in touch as if she were. So for her, that's a nice perk to be able to work at home on Friday. It gives her uh, a three-day weekend, even though she's actually at work today. And so obviously I'm a believer because I, I use it in my own business. Brilliant. All right. The controversial one right now, Bitcoin. Don't know enough to love it or leave it, but I would say it's an inevitability. You know, Bitcoin and blockchain, from what I've read, and I'm certainly no expert, is uh, holds huge potential okay. for positive and for good. Um, the complexities are a little off-putting to a guy like me, but I think that uh, I'm going to keep my eye on it because it's it's going to be more prevalent whether I love it or I, I'd leave it. 100%. Driverless cars. I love it. Right. As long as I'm not on the road at the same time. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I think the deal with driverless cars is like everything else. You know, they, they when they uh, went from horse and buggy to, you know, Model A's, you know, people used to believe that at certain speed you'd melt or your brains would ooze out of your ears or, you know. I mean, th we, we just don't know. It's un uncommon and unfamiliar. But think about it this way. As nerve-wracking as it might be to drive uh, in traffic with a driverless car – I'm far more stressed by the people who are not paying attention because they're texting yeah. or they're eating a hamburger or they're multitasking. That to me, and I think uh, statistics would bear it out, is far more dangerous than good technology once it's developed that will enable driverless trucks and driverless cars. Brilliant. How about the T-Mobile CEO? If you're familiar with him, I think it's John Laguerre, you pronounce his name, uh, John Laguerre, but he's very, very animated out there, one of the biggest... Uh, uh, advocates have you seen him or interacted with him at all i'm not okay are you asking me about loving him or leaving him yeah and you don't know him do you i don't know him and you know i gotta be careful because i probably never speak for t-mobile he's not my style but I, I tell you what he's clever like a fox i don't <laughs> like the way he does what he does but i can't argue with his success you know i would acknowledge his success and his skill even though personally it's not my cup of tea 100 all right what about a company or a, a, a leader that you love right now a company or a leap, oh, you know, and the reason I'm hesitating isn't because I don't have one. It's because I have so, so many. many. <laughs> Is there um, one yeah, that, that – you know, Joe, I don't know if Joe – did Joe mention Bruce Hines at Western Waterworks? No. Joe and I both have a shared client over the years. Western Waterworks, they sell uh, the stuff that you really don't see much. You see fire hydrants, but you don't see a lot of the valves and – and the underground uh, infrastructure that they sell for uh, uh, for cities and municipalities. And this is a company that, you know, I mean, they sell pipe, right? And they have just over the years done such an incredible job of developing a culture of turned on and engaged employees being world class in this kind of, you know, commodity business and, and treating their customers so well that uh, they just continue to grow. Growth is always a, it's not the only uh, metric, but it's a great metric to know if you're doing something well. Yeah. And it, it just, it, you know, nobody probably, unless they've read, uh, Joe's written about them, I've written about them, but Western Waterworks is a, is a small to mid-sized business that just, you know, kills it. Wow, and just by focusing on growth? Well, by focusing on the right things, all those those things that we all talk about, you know, taking care of your employees and service and adding value and growth and, uh, I mean, just those stodgy, boring, old-fashioned uh, cliches that 
are cliches for the simple reason that they're valid. Mm -hmm. They just, you know, they just out block and out tackle. Oh, that's brilliant. I, I will give a reference to one of your tweets out there. A strong Twitter game. We said when you don't see much meaning in what you do, you won't bring much value to what you do. No, you just you just put in the motions. You know, you just you you do enough to get by. You'll never be an ABCD person or what I call above and beyond the call of duty. Yeah, uh, yeah you know, and and here's the thing about meeting Jesse. You know. Not everything has apparent meaning, so sometimes you have to infuse meaning. How do you, you know, do that? Sometimes, I'm sorry. How do you do, how do you infuse meaning? I'm, in, I'm intrigued by that. Well, uh, you know, in my book, The Encore Effect, I talk about passion. Now, my buddy Larry Wingett hates passion, <laughs> uh, but but again, I I think part of that semantical. I say you get passion out of four buckets. One is your passion about what you do. Uh, another bucket is your passion about why you do it. You know, in other words, you may not have a job that isn't uh, that, that is what you would ideally be doing, but it enables you to uh, contribute money, or to put your kids through college, or to uh, take a nice vacation. In other words, it's not what you do that you're passionate about; it's why you do it. Mm -hmm. And then there's passion about how you do it. And and I think you know, without I don't want to be patronizing, but I think what you do with the Savannah Bananas is, uh, you know, you, you've reinvented, I mean, everybody does baseball, you know, you can throw a rock and hit a baseball game in, in the United States, <laughs> but what you've done is you're passionate, not just about the game, but how the, the, the experience is conducted, so that's the how part, and then the final trump card, if you can't be passionate about those other three things, be passionate about who you do it for. Yeah, be passionate about the customer that you're helping. Be passionate about the coworker you're supporting. Be passionate about the, the, the spouse at home who's depending on you to provide stability for the family. Mm -hmm. So that's how you infuse meaning is you, you look at the who, the what, the, the, the why, and uh, the how, mm -hmm. and you find one of those four ways to, to put meaning into what you do every day. No, that's brilliant. And I think so many businesses, when you ask them what they do, they talk about their product and their, their what. They don't often lead with their who. And I think that's one of the biggest things. Lead with the who. Lead with the people you're taking care of. And that's why we named our company Fans First. And I think the companies that are most successful, they follow their customer's journey. They're not just about their product. So, uh, well, let, let me, I, oh, you just reminded me of something. I'm right, kind of right. ADD. You know, I talked about Western Waterworks, which not a lot of people will have heard of. One of my favorite companies, and I fell in love with them in grade school, but they're still around, is Scholastic Books. You know, they're, they're, they survive digitization. I think they do business in like 60 countries. I think it's like a $2 billion company. And the uh, president of the company was interviewed. He, he sees a guy in a warehouse driving a forklift, and the, and the president of the company says, what's your job here? Which, you know, at some level is a stupid question because the guy drives a forklift. But listen to what the guy said. He said, sir, it is my job to help children learn to love reading. See, he gets it. That's what fans first is. Yeah. It's customer first. It's the kid. You drop a pallet, you bend the book, and when the kid gets the book, he's disappointed and it dulls his enthusiasm for reading. Mm -hmm. Or you put the pallet in the wrong place and the order goes out late and the kid thought he'd have the book to take on summer vacation. He doesn't get it. That's the brilliance of yeah. clarity and that's the brilliance of knowing why you do what you do instead of just going hey I drive a forklift and I move pallets around the warehouse yeah and that's uh, you know that's what the Fred factor was all about and that's what the people saw that's that's brilliant stuff all right what do we want to finish up strong now that's what I call service you know we've talked about a few great companies Scholastic, Western Waterworks but is there a service experience that stands out for you well, one of my favorites is uh, not too far from where I have my office in Denver. There's a, a restaurant called White Chocolate Grill. There's three of them in the United States. One is here in Denver. 
And one of the things I teach my clients is nobody remembers same. You know, if you get the same experience from one restaurant as another, they're interchangeable. But at the White Chocolate Grill, among the many things they do that I like, my favorite is halfway through your martini or your Manhattan, they bring a chilled glass and transfer it. So your glass never gets warm. Mm. And it takes them a few seconds and I have traveled all over the world and never seen any restaurant do that. Now, it doesn't change my life, but it's such a nice added touch, and it's different, and guess what? That's what I talk about when I talk about White Chocolate Grill. See, one of the things I think we miss in, in customer service is it, you got to get the basics right, but it's the little things that make a big difference, yeah. you know? And it's the chill in the glass and using the name and noticing that you need help that that takes it from same to different that is valued. Well, it shows that they care and it's the attention to detail. Those little attention to detail shows everyone in their organization cares. I was just recently at a restaurant called the Famous Toastery and I was served by about 15 different people because they're all in it together. All the tips are pooled. So everyone's coming and grabbing and helping and taking things. And it was just an interesting way of looking at it. And that was an attention to detail to me. I was like, wow, I'm cared by their entire staff, not just one person. So I, I, I love that. That's great stuff. All right. We'll finish strong here. Uh, let me see. Actually, let's do this. I'm going to give you the opportunity here. I've been asking you questions all time. I'm going to flip the script. You can ask one question to me, and then we'll finish with our final two segments. What's your favorite book related to business and why? <laughs> That's the question. Unfortunately, I ask a lot of people, but it's asking like what your favorite kid is um, because I'm constantly reading new things. The one book that's always kind of stood out for me uh, was uh, John Gordon's uh, The Carpenter, the about love, serve, and care. I love the fable style, uh, but uh, I will always come back to that because I think that sums up what you should be doing and why you should be doing it. Um, obviously, Simon Sinek, I, I love his stuff, but I would go back to The Carpenter by John Gordon. So good question. Thank you. All right. You Growing to favorites. Let's get some. Uh, what's a favorite part of your morning? Favorite part of my morning is when I free associate read, which is uh, to say, you know, stream of consciousness. I check my uh, email first thing in the morning. I know some people say not to do that, but I have my email dialed in, so I only have about five or six messages. And then I just follow rabbit trails, either from Twitter or Facebook or something I read or a news article. And uh, it only lasts for about 15 or 20 minutes, but it's, uh, it's invigorating just to be exposed to new ideas. Favorite way to unwind at the end of the day? Favorite way to unwind at the end of the day is good conversation over good beer or good bourbon. And it's not so much about the drinking because, you know, just drinking uh, is, is a way to depress yourself. But when you do it with people that you enjoy. And there's actually research, believe it or not, that says uh, if you want to have good ideas, alcohol can actually help at the beginning. Now, too much alcohol and you just think you're having good ideas. I <laughs> love it. All right. What about favorite uh, conference that you've been to, like a leadership conference or a business or service? I just went, I spoke at my friend Vern Harnish. I met Vern 30 years ago, and uh, he is the founder of Gazelles, and uh, they basically help companies scale. And I spoke on his Gazelle Scale Up Conference in St. Louis, and I had the rare opportunity to attend both days of it, and I just loved it. There were there were speakers, a few pro speakers uh, like myself, but it was mostly made up of practitioners, people that had built companies. Sam Zell spoke. That's interesting to hear a billionaire's perspectives. Wow. And uh, I just, uh, the, the work that they do at Gazelles is, is terrific. 
And uh, Vern is a longtime friend, so I really enjoyed that conference. Outstanding. All right, you asked me, so I'm coming back at you. What's your favorite book? Uh, I could give you the easy answer. You know, as a person of faith, the Bible is so foundational mm-hmm. and it's such a rich book with so many different styles and, and narratives in it. But, you know, that's that's kind of like saying, you know, your favorite uh you know, part of the United States is the Constitution, right? I mean, that's just foundational. I would say, you know, for, and I don't even know why. I, I'm going to go back and reread the book, but uh, there was a, a there was a book written by Stan Davis. Well, I do know why. Stan Davis, and the book is woefully dated now, just not because it wasn't a good book, but because it was written 20 plus years ago, and it was called Future Perfect. And the reason that that book has stuck in my brain is Stan used such unusual metaphors and ideas, but grounded them in business that I guess it was when the light bulb went on that, you know, business didn't have to be as usual. You know, it didn't have to be uh, textbook boring, that it could be truly innovative and truly life changing and truly make a positive impact. So even though a lot of what he wrote about, you know, has become kind of fulfilled, if you will, the, the ideas that stimulated my thinking came out of that book. And I've never met Stan Davis. I'd, I'd love to meet him someday. Uh, the book was called Future Perfect. All right, Stan, if you're listening, uh, make sure you reach out to Mark Sandberg. All right, we'll wait like that happen, Mark. <laughs> uh, two more favorites. Favorite uh, TED Talk or speech? You know, obviously you've heard thousands of speeches. Is there one that stands out? Uh, you know, I don't listen to a lot of TED Talks, not because I don't like TED Talks, but because I don't have a, a lot of time. Yeah. Um, I once heard a sociologist, Jennifer James, and again, you know, I can't remember where I had lunch yesterday, but many <laughs> years ago, I heard Jennifer James uh, talk about sociology and business. And <laughs> believe it or not, one of the things I can still remember is she was talking about, you know, what you probably have dealt with, you know, restrooms in in, in uh, public places, you know, yep. men's rooms lines are always shorter uh, than women's restrooms because there's always the same number of restrooms, right? And one of the things she talked about was this innovative stadium where they, depending on the mix of the audience, they, they opened or closed restrooms. Like if there were, if it was a women's event, all the, they, there was one men's restroom and nine women's restrooms. If it was a, a 50-50 event, there were five and five. And I just remember going, you know, how do we miss that? Like it, that, that's kind of prodded me today to say to restaurant tours, wow. people who are past the age of about 45 or 50 can't read 11 point font. If you want us to know what we're ordering, make the font a little bigger. <laughs> the people who are going to nice restaurants and laying down a lot of money are often older people and they're not even that old, but they just can't read the font. So I guess Jennifer James impressed me with this kind of ability to observe the world and just see things that are obvious in retrospect, but they can be easily solved. All right, last favorite and then our final four. The last favorite, I'm intrigued for you. Traveled around the world, spoke everywhere. Is there a favorite business moment that just stands out and you're just like, wow, I'll never forget that moment? Well, there there are a lot of them. You know, you, you got married in uh, in your stadium uh, in 2015, I believe. Good, good, good background there. I'm impressed. I uh, proposed to my wife in 1995 when I received the Speaker Hall of Fame induction. And it wasn't business per se, but no. it was uh, coupling a really memorable moment uh, with uh, a really memorable award. So that... That was in Minneapolis, the Hilton downtown. I, uh, at the end of my acceptance speech, 
I uh, had my my future wife stand up and I said I could introduce her as my girlfriend or my significant other. But if she said yes, I'd like to introduce her as my fiance and I asked her to marry me. And <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, she said yes. <laughs> yeah. In front of how many? I mean, probably hundreds of people. They must have gone nuts. It was pretty memorable. It was it was a good moment. I love that. All right, uh, Mark, our final four. What is something you've done differently in your life to stand out? I think I've always been big on preparation. I, I think that uh, most battles or games are won off the field. It's what you do to prepare, to background, to practice, to study, to analyze, and to think that all comes to culmination when you finally are on stage or you're in front of the prospect or, or you're doing the interview. So I would say, you know, for me, it's, it's preparation. All right. Now, outside of preparation, what do you think makes someone stand out in business and in life? I would say a, a decided a point of view, a definitive point of view. You, you know where they're coming from. It's well thought out. It's not uh, slam, uh, bam, or, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, words escape me, but I guess informed would be the best way to say. You know, uh, uh, Moynihan once said, we're all entitled to uh, our own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And so I think to stand out in business, you need to be well informed so that your point of view is based in reality or based in facts and that it's uh, clear what, you stand for and what's important to you. Final two here. Best advice you've ever received? May I spend less than I make. That was my father told me when I was ah. a young kid. He said, spend less than you make. Think about it. That is the, that is ground zero for all financial success. <laughs> because if you only uh, save a little bit over time, it becomes a lot. So that's guided me. And I'm very grateful my dad told me that. Uh, so simple. So great. Finally, how do you want to be remembered? I would like to be remembered as a, a guy who wanted to make a positive difference uh, because uh, he loved people and because he loved people. He led, and when he led, he served. I guess that would be uh, an epitaph that uh, I would like to have on my, my gravestone. Uh, but even ahead of that, loving people begins with uh, the people who are closest to you. Sometimes it's easier to love people in the abstract uh, than it is to love people in the, in the present moment. So I think it begins with how you treat the people who are closest to you, and that uh, that consistently uh, outflows to how you treat the people you encounter every day. Brilliant. Mark, thank you so much for sharing this unbelievable wisdom. And, you know, thank you for the impact that you've had on our organization. You know, I know everyone needs to check out. Mark, where can they, where can they find out the books, the information to, to learn more from you? Just go to MarkSanborn.com and everything will direct you there. Uh, outstanding. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for the impact you're making. Thank you, Jesse. Hey guys, thanks so much for your attention. Make sure to check out findyouryellowtux.com. I'm giving it away for free, The Secrets of the Yellow Tux Playbook, The Six Secrets to Stand Out, directly from the book, Find Your Yellow Tux. Hope you grab a copy of Find Your Yellow Tux, How to Be Successful by Standing Out. I appreciate you guys. Until then, stop standing still, start standing out.